Let's pray. Lord, one service, one sermon can forever change a destiny. That's very true. Because when your spirit is upon us, when our inside starts to recognize you on the outside, it is then, Lord, that we are transformed and we are saved. I pray for such grace here this morning. I pray, Lord, that may, we, may you change the way we look at things, especially in our speech, in the way we treat our spouses. May we have your perspective. Father, do not leave us alone. Give us clarity. All these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. By the way, I'm very impressed with you guys here on time. I was, I was expecting half, because I almost forgot. I was at a you know, hair salon yesterday at 6 o'clock, and I go, oh, shoot, i got to go to church early tomorrow. Right? Man, you, better than me. There you go. All right, we are continuing our studies in the Sermon on the Mount, and we are looking at you know, the latter verses of chapter 5. When you actually look at the latter verses of chapter 5, what Jesus is doing is, even though it's not expressly stated, what Jesus is doing is he is analyzing what is wrong with the world. He's, an, he's giving you a diagnosis of what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with the, our lives and our, our lives. And what is wrong with the world and our lives is unrighteousness. The world is suffering our lives are suffering because of unrighteousness. That's what, that's what Jesus is trying to get to in these verses. The world tells us, you know, the causes of pain and suffering in the world is due to external circumstances, right? external things. Um, you know, people say, what's wrong with the world is patriarchy. You know, basically, feminists are saying men ruled the world for a long time and men messed it up. It's all men's fault, right? So that's patriarchy, especially white men, right? Sorry, Sean Stark, right? It's patriarchy. Some would say it is capitalism, right? Income inequality, right? Income should be spread equally, right? It's that system that is wrong with the world that is causing much suffering. Or what else? Racism. People say racism is wrong with what's wrong with the world. Therapists would say, I know because I went to one, would say what is wrong with you is your parents. So when I went to therapy, I went, there were like seven free sessions that my company gave me back in the day. So I took advantage of all seven. And for those six, I talked about my parents, right? And because the assumption is, what's wrong with me, and there's a lot, is because it's my parents. It's not my fault. It's the parents' fault. So they try to put the blame on external things. But Jesus is saying, yeah, maybe it's true. These external forces certainly add to the fallenness of the world. But the real diagnosis, the real issue of what is wrong with the world and your life is unrighteousness. People not living up to the standard of God. That kid agrees with me. Whose baby is that? That baby has lungs on that. Oh, hey! No, you can, you can, you can stay. I love, yeah, good. Right? Um, no, 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 please, please stay. I'm, I didn't want to call you out. Okay. Right. So, so yeah, he's upset. He wants to hear the word of God. Right, so... So, where was I? Oh, well, so what is unrighteousness, right? I mean, we have the, we use words like righteousness and righteousness. We throw it around a lot. But what exactly is unrighteousness? And that's what we're studying in the last few weeks. Unrighteousness, number one, is hatred. Hatred, Jesus defines, 
as fits of rage, fits of anger, right? Hatred is fits of anger, fits of unjustified, unwarranted anger, right? Um, road rage, for example, it's fits of rage, and that is unrighteous. Road rage is unrighteous. Another way of, another definition of hatred is saying and thinking dehumanizing things. That person is an idiot, that person is no good, that person is unworthy, that person is beneath me, that, that kind of a thing. Dehumanizing people, that's unrighteous. Condemning people. You have your own moral standard, and that person certainly doesn't fall, falls underneath your moral standard. And therefore, if you condemn people, that's unrighteous. You think you're justified in condemning people, right? For some reason, we think we have the right to condemn people. But if you condemn people, that's unrighteous. Because we hate like that, the world suffers and our life suffers. Another example of unrighteousness, another issue that Jesus points to of unrighteous acts is lust. Lust, we talked about last week, is you're overrun with passion. And because you're overrun with passion, you use someone, another person, to satisfy your passions. For men, it is truly just the act of dominance and sex. For women, it is the, the fantasy of dream come true relationship. And because either party burns with, burns with over passion for the other party, we use the other person to satisfy our longings. That's lust. That's unrighteous. And the third thing that Jesus talks about, what is wrong with the world and what is wrong with you and me, is unfaithfulness. What is unfaithfulness? Being unfaithful means what you say is different from what you do. You make a promise, but you break that promise. You say one thing, but you clearly, meet, clearly mean the other. Unfaithfulness is what you express on the outside is different from what, what your intent on the inside. Or unfaithfulness is you promise to do something, but you don't do it. That's unrighteous, right? I'll give you an example of my life this week. So this week, last week, someone texted me, said, hey, can we, can we have lunch this week, right, this, this past week? And I said, yeah, sure. I'll have lunch with you, right? He works in D.C., I work in D.C. Yeah, no problem. Let me get back to you early this week, and we can set up a schedule. That's what I said over the phone. Did I text him this week to have lunch with him over the, uh, did I text him? No. Why? In my mind, I said, well, my partner was on vacation. So I got slammed with all this work. But, you know, so, you know, it's just a week. I'll, 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 I promise I'll text him this week. I mean, in my mind, I promise in my mind, I'll text him this week, right? Before I prepared for a sermon, I didn't realize that w- what I was doing. But as I was preparing for this message, I realized that is very unrighteous. I promised to text him back so we can have lunch together. But I didn't do it. I was being unfaithful. That's unrighteous. You'll say, oh, PJ, relax. You're too hard on yourself. Maybe. But the seed of what I did, it's the same, right? It's the seed of what I did, this unfaithfulness. What I vowed to do, I didn't do. And that's the nature of the human. That is what's wrong with the world, right? People say one thing, and they, they, and they, they don't do it. That's what makes premarital sex, by the way, very dangerous. Because premarital sex, like, this is a Tim Keller thing. 
is when you have premarital sex, you're making this promise, implicit promise, that I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, like, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to, I'm going to love you. But when you break up, you just use someone for their body. You're kind of breaking an oath. And guys, this is, this is like my years of research of talking with unbelieving 20-something females. Of that, I mean like three, right? They said even one-night stands, women who come, like do one-night stands, they secretly hope that the guy will call them back the next day. But when the guys don't call them back the next day, they die a little. Premarital sex is really also about breaking an oath. Politicians, the world, one of the reasons why we're wrong with this world is politicians say one thing, but they don't do what they say. Unfaithfulness. That is in the world, that is in Donald Trump, that, that is in every other Democratic 2020 candidates, that is in you. And that is what's wrong with the world. How do we correct it? How do we correct our unrighteousness? People in Jesus' day, rabbis in Jesus' day, they try to make rules. Right? Let's make rules, and if you obey these rules, then you're not unrighteous. Right? That's what they said. Right? So like, that's, what, that's why Jesus always starts off these series of sermons, saying, you have heard it says. When Jesus says, you have heard it says, he's quoting an, a, a, a rabbinic rule that the rabbinic like, rabbis made. But the problem with making rules, right, is that rules in and of themselves do not make someone hearts righteous. So if you give a rule to, who's, to, to someone whose heart is not righteous, what does that person do? They try to make loopholes. I know, because my career outside of this church is all about loopholes. There's a law, and people, if their hearts are not convinced that, that what that law tried to do is true, if they're not convinced, they, the unbelieving heart, the unconverted heart will look at those laws and try to figure their way out of it, loopholes. For example, I tell you, it is, the Bible says, do not have premarital sex. An unbelieving heart will say, okay, then what is sex? How far can I go? until I don't break that rule, right? So, like, there is this Christian culture out there where, like, unbelieving teenage, like, church-going teenagers, they start dating, and they do all sorts of things but actually having intercourse. They do all sorts of things, but as long as there's no intercourse, they say, oh, I'm righteous, I'm obedient to God. You see how that works? There's a law, but if you really don't want to obey that law, you're trying to figure out loopholes. The intent of not having premarital sex is respecting someone, loving someone, respecting someone, right? That's the intent of that law. But if you're not convinced of the intent of that law, all you see is the law, you try to make loopholes. If I say the Bible says don't do drugs, an unbelieving heart will say, okay, what type of drugs can I do until I break that law? Can I do pot? Pot is legal in Colorado, right? Can I do pot? 
If I don't do that, if I, if, I just, if I don't do anything worse than pot, does that make me righteous? The intent of not doing drugs is, Christians, more than anyone else, our calling is to have a clear mind, self-controlled, clear mind. And any drug, is, it, it, like, it's, it's prohibiting that, right? But if a heart is not convinced that God wants you to have a clear mind, when you just see that law, you are trying to wiggle yourself out of it. Unrighteousness is a state of what you, what we are on the inside. And there's no laws that can change what you are on the inside. Jesus gives a couple of examples today about this such thing. And the first example that he gives is about taking oaths, right? Taking vows. In the Old Testament, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter, what chapter is that, Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy 7. God said, I'm sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. So in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 20, Jesus tells the Israelites, take when you promise to do something, you, if you like when you promise to do something, if you in, if you promise to in, if you invoke the name of God to promise that you're going to do something, then you're going to do it. In the Old Testament, how people Made, like enter into agreements is vows, oaths. Let's say I want to you know, go out and buy a, I don't know, a BMW 5 Series. In the Old Testament days, I go to the BMW Fairfax dealer, I look at the car, I like the color, I test drive it, and I tell the BMW dealer, I promise in the name of God I'm going to pay a monthly installment of $500 for this car. I invoke the name of God. And the dealer says, fine with me. Here's the key. Let's drive. It's, there's no contract. The contract was invoking the name of God. If you invoke the name of God, you must do it. That was the way it, was, it worked in Jewish times. But the human heart didn't really want to do it, right? Because the human heart, we say one thing when we need something, but when we actually get what we want, we really don't want to do what we said we were going to do. You know what I mean? Like the lawyers say, you know, you know there's an outhouse principle, right? When, you're, when you have a stomachache, what you think you, what you promise before going into the bathroom to relieve yourself is very different from what you are after you relieve yourself, right? When you want something, you make all sorts of promises to get it. But when you actually get it, you don't want to do it anymore. And because of such mentality, people were starting to break oaths all the time. But the problem was, rabbis thought, okay, the people are just sinning. People are breaking oaths in the name of God. That was a huge problem. So what the rabbis did was, okay, this is what we're going to do. In order for people not to sin by breaking oaths, we're going to devise another system of oaths. Rather than making a promise in the name of God to pay off that BMW, you can say, I promise in the name of Jerusalem I'm going to pay off that car loan. And if you somehow you know, fail to make the car loan, you're not really sinning because you really didn't use the name of God. You used the name of Jerusalem. Loophole. Well, if you promise to pay the, pay the loan off in the name of you know, the earth, right? then if you break that oath, you're not sinning. 
If you promise to pay the loan off in the name of, I don't know, um, the heavens, I promise the heavens I'm going to pay off that loan. If you don't promise that oath, then you're not sinning. People are starting, the rabbis are starting to make loopholes because the rabbis knew people were not committing to their promises. Jesus says, no. You have devised system of oaths, but the end, at the end of the matter, what God's will is, is that his people will honor what they say. That's why Jesus says, let your yeses be yeses and no be noes. Don't promise anything, don't swear anything. Only say what you're really going to do. If you overpromise what you're going to do, then you are committing evil. That's what Jesus says. Because God is a God who does what he says. What is the one quality of God that is more, most prominent in the Bible is his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is he does what he says he's going to do. And the prime example of that is our salvation. Why did, if you are saved, why did God save you? He saved you not because of your performance, not because of your faithfulness. He saved you because he promised himself to save you. And you can look at clearly in the book of Genesis. Remember when we talked about Abraham for like a couple of months? God promised Abraham that he was going to make Abraham a father of great nations and all the earth is going to be blessed because of him. And if you study Genesis, Abraham did some wacky things. Remember? Some wacky things Abraham did. It's like sold his wife to as, you know, give his wife to like Egyptian kings. Egypt king. How many times? Twice. He sold his wife off. Right? His wife says, I can't be pregnant, so I want you to sleep with my maidservant Hagar. Abraham goes, okay. And he sleeps with her. And then like Hagar gets pregnant. But Sarah gets jealous. And Sarah said, told Abraham, Abraham, kick Hagar all, out of the house. Abraham goes, okay. And he kicks her out. Abraham was not a good dude in some times. He failed God a lot. And yet God still honored his promise. Why? Because Abraham was faithful? No, because God was faithful to his word. If you are saved here this morning, it isn't because your mommy and daddy are Christians. It isn't because, I don't know, you were raised at SPC. It's because God has promised to save you, and he does what he promises. Therefore, Jesus says, just like God, you will do what you promise. So don't overpromise. Let your yeses be yeses and no be noes. Anything above that is wickedness. El comprende? Jesus wants you to do what you say you're going to do because that's in conformity to the nature of God. We come to marriage. This is an introductory to marriage. Why? Because the most important oath that a man and a woman will ever enter into is the covenant of marriage. You understand? What is the marriage ceremony? What is the marriage ceremony? Marriage ceremony is, is very theological. When a man and a woman, man and a woman, not man and man, God created man and a woman. I can get fired for this at work, right? Is this being recorded? Uh-oh, here we go. All right, hi, HR. 
It's, right? It's, it's a man. God created a man and a woman. And God and man and woman leaves their parents. And they are, and God unites them. And they become one flesh. That's the covenant of marriage. Right? Man and woman leaving their, leaving their parents, conjoining and becoming one flesh. That is the most holy relationship in the universe. Why? Because that relationship reflects the Trinity. Three distinct people, three distinct head, Godhead, right? Because it, 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 three distinct person in the Godhead, and yet they're all God. Three in one, one in three. One in three? I don't know whether that's blasphemy or not, but Pastor, would you want to tell me later? That's the Trinity. Three persons of God, it all God, all one God. That's marriage. There is no other relationship in the entire universe that symbolizes Trinity like the union of marriage. Not your relationship with your kids, not your relationship with your best friend. Your relationship with your the relationship with your husband and wife is the most holy covenant relationship, human relationship. When God looks at you, if you're married, when God looks at you, he just doesn't look at you. He looks at, his, he looks at your wife and your husband. There's different roles within the, within the marriage relationship, right? Husband is to lead the family. Wife is to be the helper. By helper, God means not someone who gives the husband sandwiches when he wants, but a helper in which the wife completes the husband. The husband cannot do anything apart from the helper, his wife. There are different offices within the, within the covenant, within the relationship of marriage. But when God looks at the husband and wife, he doesn't look at, he doesn't look at them separately. He looks, at, he, looks at, he looks at them as one. One guy says, I want to go into ministry, and he's married. I want to go to ministry. He says, I think I'm called to the ministry, he says. And I said, what about your wife? What does your wife say? I don't think she, she doesn't want me to go to the ministry. But I really want to, I love Jesus, I want to go to the ministry. But my wife doesn't. What's the answer? Then God doesn't want you to go to the ministry. Why? Because when God looks at your, that man's decision, he just doesn't consider what that man wants to do. He considers what the wife wants to do. If the wife is not called, the husband is not called. Because God doesn't look at two people, like husband and wife separately. He looks at, he looks at, he looks at them as one. In a marriage ceremony, that's what you're promising God. You're saying God has created us, God has joined us, and only God can separate us. People in the Jewish time knew this. Their entire wedding ceremony was based on this theology. But what happened? After they get married, after they get what they want, the promises of God don't really seem that important anymore. Man, I wake, I wake up next to her every morning. Man, like, she complains a lot. Man. By the way, just, I'm telling you from a man's perspective because it is only man who can divorce the wife in the Jewish, Jewish you know, era. Man. She can't cook really well. I miss my mom's cooking. My mom used to cook me like this. 
but yours is not. By the way, that's like true story. Like I came back from Korea a couple of months ago, and I, and I told my wife how my mom cooked salmon. My wife got super mad at me, right? So guys, don't do that, right? Man, she snores. Man, she gained like a couple of pounds. And men started to think this way. You know what men started to do? Jewish men who promised to like, be conjoined with the right. You know what they started to do? They started to divorce their wives. And before the law of God was given, divorce came really easily for Jewish dudes. They, like, if they want to get divorced, all they have to say is look at their wife and say, I'm divorcing you. I'm releasing you. And that's it? That's all you have to do. Easier than Thanos' snap. You can say, I release you. I'm not married to you. And that's it. That's perfectly legit divorce. Feminists, I know feminists, you're angry. I'm angry too. Right? And so these, these happen more and more. There was an epidemic of dudes just divorcing their wives for the heck of it. That's why Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Right? What did he say? In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in the law of God, if you look at it, it says, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, he writes her a certificate of divorce. So in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, Moses wrote, all right, so if the husband finds something, something indecent about his wife, he can divorce his wife. But when you divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce. Why did Moses write that law? A couple of things. Number one, it is, to, it is to tell the dude, you cannot divorce her for any reason. That is unlawful. That is unrighteous. You really got to think of why you're divorcing her. And if you find something indecent about her, by indecent, I think the intent was sexually immoral stuff, then you can write a, her a certificate of divorce. You just can't say, I release you you ought to give her a certificate. It is to promote guys just really thinking about, do they really want to divorce this wife, this woman? And also, by giving her a certificate, the woman has some legal standing. Because if the woman doesn't have a certificate and she's just divorced, she has no legal standing in the community. And we, people don't know what to do with her. So Moses says, write, wrote this law. Did that cure dudes' hearts of wanting to divorce their wives? No. Loophole time. So how do, you, how, do you, how do you get a loophole out of this God's law? Oh, the definition of what indecent is. I hate lawyers, right? What is the definition of indecent? Right? Some rabbis thought the word indecent only meant sexual sins. Other rabbis interpreted the word indecent as any reason the guy thinks. If you burn my dinner, you're indecent, woman. Here's a certificate. Bye-bye. If you grow your hair long and walk down the street with long hair, you're indecent, woman. Certificate. Bye-bye. Dudes found loopholes, and they were divorcing their wives for any reason regardless. You see what happens? You can give people laws, but if the internal reality is not convinced, 
you will make loopholes and you will do what you want to do anyway. Jesus. What does Jesus, Jesus, Jesus say? Verse 32, but I say to you that anyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What is Jesus trying to say? The first thing he's, trying, he's, he's saying is this. Just because you give her a certificate of divorce, it doesn't mean God sees your relationship as divorced. You may think you're divorcing your wife, but Jesus is saying, remember, who is the one that joined you? It is God. And whether you write her a certificate or not, if you're divorced, if it's on biblical grounds, when God looks at your relationship, he will not look at your relationship as divorced. He will still consider your relationship as married. What Jesus is saying here is this. You don't get to decide whether you're divorced or not. It's not up to your definition of what you, what, what, you, what you are. That's what human beings do, right? Human beings, what we do is we define what, what we think is sin. We think we get to decide what is sin and what is, what is not. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. You don't get to make that decision. What is sin or not is not how you feel about it. It's how God sees it. And if you divorce your wife without any biblical grounds, and there's only two biblical grounds, one is sexual immorality, and second is desertion, if, there is, if you're divorced at any other biblical ground, when God looks at you, he will still consider you married. And when, that, when your wife, that, whom you haven't legitimately divorced, marries another person, she's guilty of adultery. And you're guilty of causing her to perform adultery. You've got to look at things from the perspective of God. You've got to look at your spouse from the perspective of God. You don't get to look at your spouse in, in your perspective. The perspective of God. When we say, I do, in the wedding ceremony, we're like those dudes, right, guys? We, she, she's the love of our life, and we say, I do, and we start living with her. And wives, when you start living with us, He's not Prince Charming. She's not the love of your life anymore. It doesn't feel like it anymore, does it? Man, you can't even do that. Man, she complains a lot. She nags a lot. Man, he doesn't spend time with me. Man, she's really demanding. Man, I got to work hard to support her. Man, I'm busy, but he's not helping me out, right? You start to look at yourself from the perspective, not from the perspective of God, your, your marriage. You start to look at some, your, your spouse in the perspective of your desires, your fallenness. Jesus says, you don't get to do that. If you're divorced illegitimately, and if you marry someone else, you're in an adulterous relationship. What is the biblical ground? What is the biblical legitimate grounds of divorce? Once again, sexual morality and desertion from an unbelieving spouse. You know, the second one is not the, what we're going to talk about today. So one of the biblical grounds of divorce is sexual morality. 
Notice Jesus doesn't say adultery. He says sexual morality. Certainly adultery, sleeping with someone that is not your spouse, that is certainly part of sexual morality. But a sexual morality encompasses a lot more. It encompasses homosexuality, encompasses incest. It also encompasses fornication, sex before you are married. So if you discover that your wife, if she claimed to be a virgin and yet you discover she wasn't, then that's a biblical legitimate grounds of divorce. How do you know? Joseph and Mary, right? Remember? They were betrothed, which was like they were basically almost married. But when Joseph discovered Mary was pregnant, when when Joseph thought she was pregnant with some other dude's kid, he quietly divorced her. Sexual morality, Jesus says, is a grounds for divorce. Why is that? Why is adultery and sexual morality grounds for divorce? Because in the eyes of God, what you, what you do with sexual morality is you take, if you conduct sexual morality, if you have an affair after you get married, what you are doing is you are taking your marriage and you are smashing it on the ground. Read Genesis, Jeremiah chapter 1, 2, and 3 to see how God feels about unfaithfulness. God talks about the unfaithfulness of Israel, how Israel is unfaithful, how Israel is becoming like a whore with the, with, 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 with the, with the surrounding nations. By the way, that's in there, so I'm not cursing. And you see God's heartbreak when his people are cheating on him. You can see his anger, but you can see his love for them. And, and unfaithfulness kills a relationship, kills a a marital bond. So I was doing research about adultery. You know what the crazy thing about adultery is? When people who are actually in adultery, among all the articles that I read, none of them thought that they were killing their marriage. When the husband was sleeping, uh, sleeping with another woman, he never thought he's going to destroy, he's destroying his family or his marriage. When the wife was sleeping with some fantasy guy that she thought was Mr. Right, she never thought that she was killing their marriage. No one in their adulterous relationship thinks they're killing their marriage. But God says, regardless of what you think you're doing, you're killing your marriage. Sexual morality is killing your marriage. And it's an abomination to God. Malachi chapter 2, God hates divorce. The re- one of the reasons why God is judging Israel hard is because they allowed divorce to run rampant. The question is then, I mean, I mean maybe this isn't a forum to discuss. What if you are divorced and what if you do get married and you never heard about this? What's going to happen? Is your new marriage an adulterous marriage? That you've got to ask them privately. Because none of you are divorced yet. Not yet, hopefully never, right? But the underlying cause of divorce is the same, same underlying cause of swearing false oaths. It is an unfaithful heart. You don't want to do what you say you want to do, what, what, what you promise to do. Remember husband and wives in the wedding ceremony? Some, I, I was there, a lot of it, right? 
all of you promise, husband, that you will love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wife, you have promised before God that you will respect and submit to your husband. That's what you promised before God in the wedding day, remember? Are you doing it? Husbands, are you truly loving your wife as Christ loved the church? He killed himself for the church. Oh, PJ, you're being too idealistic. You're not living in the real world. Why are you saying that to me? It's because how you see your wife or your your husband, you think is more truth is more truthful than this idealistic notion of Christ, you loving your wife as Christ loved the church. You think what you see, how you feel about your spouse, is more truthful than how God sees your marital relationship. And because you think your vision is the truth, you can treat your spouse however however wish you please. That's what it is. Why did I not text back my friend? I promised, when I made that promise, I promised, I thought I really was going to text him to make an appointment. But then life got in the way. My partner got on vacation. I got slammed with cases. So, you know, that is not that important anymore. You don't honor your promise. Because you let the moment of how you think things are dictate the importance of these matters. The way you you become a person who honors your promise, therefore, is you gotta stop seeing things the way you want to see them, and you gotta start seeing them the way God sees them. Do you understand? You have to stop looking at your wife or husband the way you want to see them. You want to start looking at the way that God sees them. And that's exactly what Jesus does. What Jesus does, he opens your eyes. When you see God, when you start seeing God, you start to look at things through his lens and not your own. And that's the miracle of salvation. Salvation is not just, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to heaven. That is not salvation. Salvation is Jesus coming into your life and making you look at God who is on the outside. And when you look at God on the outside, your inside starts to conform to who He is. That's salvation. And that happens. That really happens. How do I know? Yesterday, I was obsessed with this guy named Beckett Cook. And I was so obsessed, I, start, I got his book, and I started reading it. And I didn't get the $9 Kindle edition, I got the $20 audiobook version. That's how much I was obsessed. Who is Beckett Cook? Beckett Cook was a, is a Hollywood set designer, right? He's a top 1%. Homosexual, like, homosexual design, like, set designer, right? And he was the top 1%. He was parting it up with all the... Like, you know, actresses, directors, photographers, he was parting it up, right? And there is no reason why he would be a Christian. There wasn't a crisis, there wasn't a drug addiction, he was living it up. 
One day at a party at, after a Paris fashion show, you know Stella McCartney? She's Paul McCartney's daughter, fashion designer. She was in Stella McCartney's party, and he was looking at the people around him. And he said, is, is this it? Is this it? These beautiful people drinking champagne, is this it? So he had, he had a little bit of like questioning whether this is all there is to life thing. You know, maybe midlife crisis, because you know, he's my age. And we all question stuff. And go, oh, okay, forget about it. Like a few months later, he was in LA. He had, he said he had such a good, great life. Set designer, right? Weekend, he would go to his best friend, go shopping, go to, go to eat delicious food and go to coffee. You know, just like you know, a lot of Asian women, like, eat delicious food, go shopping. You know, so sexist and stereotypical, I should like, get fired, right? And so that's what he was doing. Saturday, right? So he was drinking coffee at a very trendy cafe. And he looked to his right, and the next table were these millennial 20-somethings. They had their Bibles open. And they were talking, they were having Bible study in L.A. And the, the area that they were in was the riskiest part of L.A., the belly of the beast, right? He never saw a Bible being opened before. So that fascinated him, right? These 20-somethings, much like people in this room, right? This room, kind of old, right? This room, right? And he was fascinated. He was fascinated. So they, like, he stuck up a conversation with them. He goes, like, okay, like, all these unbelieving questions. What do you believe in, right? How can God allow suffering in the world if he exists? How can a loving God allow babies to go, like, die and go cancer? What do you think about homosexuals, right? And the young men that he was talking to gave him straight-up answers. And the young man says, hey, my church is down the street. Like, you know, this is my number. And if you want to come to church, you're invited. So he left. And he goes, oh, that was weird. And so, and like, best, his best friend was making fun of the guy, eh, done nothing, right? So a couple of weeks ago, he says, should I go? Huh, maybe I'll check it out. So he went to the church and he checked it out. He says, the first thing, you know, like the school was meeting up, met up in an auditorium. And as soon as he got into it, he says, oh, Christian music. And he's, oh my gosh, I forgot how cheesy Christian music is. Oh. And then he started listening to it. And he said, eh, not bad. Right? Not bad. How my Savior loves me? Not bad. And then the preacher came out, he says. And that preacher preached for an hour. And he says, something happened when the preacher was preaching for an hour. He says, every word that the guy was speaking his mind, his heart start to say, it's true. What the guy was saying, it's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. After an hour, he says, preacher, please don't stop because it's true. But the preacher has to stop because one hour is too, too, too long. 50 minutes is reasonable. One hour is just too long. And then the preacher says, if you want prayer, there's prayer people on the right. He said, oh, okay, and should, I go, should I go up there? Go, uh. Okay, so he had someone pray for him. And when the guy was, so he told the guy, I'm not a believer, I'm just here visiting. He go, okay, and the guy was praying for him. And he says, the guy was praying for him with such love. He couldn't understand it. He went back to his seat, singing the songs again. 
And suddenly he says, it happened. The Holy Spirit, and you could hear him say, I am God. Jesus is my son. The Bible is true. You're not part of my kingdom. When he realizes it, he said he started crying. Crying, crying. He went back home, took a nap. When he woke up, I am God. Jesus is my son. The Bible is true. You're part of my kingdom. He said he heard that voice every morning for two months. He, and he woke up every morning just crying, not because of his sins, but because he couldn't get over that the king of the universe has accepted him as his son. And he says, when, I, when he realized that, he says, leaving the homosexual lifestyle wasn't a problem. He said, I'm not, I, I, he said, Lord, just take it. I don't care. Even if it means I'll be celibate for the rest of my life, I don't care because you're so wonderful. That was 10 years ago. He still can't get over the fact that the king of the universe called him his. He says, when he starts seeing that truth, when he starts seeing himself in the light of who God is and how he, God has accepted him, he says he sees everything clearly. He says the writers that he thought were great now seem so foolish. The radio program that seems so wise is foolishness. He canceled his subscription to HBO because he was just stupid, he says. Even sexuality. He says, homosexuality is a sin. I don't want to live that lifestyle. So he, he doesn't. When he starts to see himself in the light of who God is, the way he sees everything else changes. And brothers and sisters who are married, that's exactly what you need. You need to see, you need to meet God and, see, and God have God adjust your eyes to see your spouse through his eyes, through his truth. And what is his truth? that you and your wife are one. And you are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and your wife, you are, you are called to respect and submit your hus- to your husband as, Christ, as the church submits to Christ. That's the truth. And when you meet God, you will start to see it. I promise you. The reason why your marriages are not as healthy as they should be is because you're not seeing your marriage through his eyes. You're seeing your spouse through the eyes of expectation. You need to see God in order to love your wife. That is why spending time with Him, private worship, is so important because it is through private worship you get the joy of the Lord. And when you get the joy of the Lord, the way you see your partner will change. God, in Jeremiah chapter 2, His heart breaks for his people. And one of the reasons why his heart breaks for his people is this. He says, I am the spring of living water. If you come, if you drink of me, if you fellowship with me, if you know my word, if I let you be part of my life, then you will find joy and you will start to to have life. But my people don't see it that way. 
My people start to dug, dig their own water, water stuff, and they're thirsty. He says, I give you the living water, but you're looking for your own water source, and therefore you're thirsty. Is that what you're doing, brothers and sisters? Are you drinking from the spring of living water? Or are you trying to, I don't know, satisfy your own longing through your own ways? When you start to drink the living water, I promise you, your marriage will start to bear life. What is your reason for not spending time? You're tired. Are you really that tired? If there's one thing that I know more than anyone else, it's how, what, what tiredness is. But there's no amount of tiredness. I'm telling you, this is kind of harsh, but okay, I'm warning you, there's no amount of tiredness that could justify you not drinking from the living water. There's nothing. Beckett Cook, you know the guy that I was talking about? He says, if I had a kid, and my kid watches Netflix for an hour, I would tell my kid to read the Bible for another hour. Because, you, because if you watch Netflix for an hour, you're being lied to. You are lied to for an hour. He knows that his best friends are Hollywood writers. You're tired, but yet you go and listen to lies? Is that what you're doing? If you do that, your marriage will suffer. Come to the living water. Drink from him. Look, the other day, right? Like, I was having a theological discussion with my wife. And those of you who know me, you know how passionate I get when I have theological discussions. Right? And it was a very sensitive topic. And I was going, I was doing this to her personally in my living room. It ain't good. And I went to the basement. I would start praying. And Jesus says, you know, I never talk to you like the way you talk to your wife. You're wrong all the time, but I never talk to you the way you talk to your wife. I go, that's true. I never think that I'm better. I never lord over you. I'm always patient with you. That's true. How do I get that impression? How do I know that? It's because I do private worship. How are you going to hear God's voice if you don't do private worship? Right? For the sake of your marriage. Young men, not just marriage, single men, for the sake of fighting your lusts. Drink from the living water. Don't give this I'm too tired nonsense. It's nonsense. Because, like I said before, you're not too tired to get lied to. Drink. And you will start to bear fruit. And your marriage will start to bear fruit. Let's pray.